You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Joel Michael Reynolds. Joel is a PhD candidate in the Department of Philosophy at Emory University. He is also a graduate partner in the Center for the Study of Human Health and was the first Eleni Graduate School Disability Studies Fellow. He is currently completing his dissertation entitled Ethics at the Disability, Ableism, Experience, and the Worth of Untoward Lives. Today, we talk about stigmas and oppression surrounding disability, technology and mortality, reading philosophy through a disability lens, and sex and disability. Hello, Joel, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's an honor to uh, be speaking with you. Well, thank you for coming on. Tell me, Joel, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I was uh, I was raised in an evangelical Protestant household, and one of the things uh, that that meant was that I attempted, uh, I usually failed, uh, to read the Bible a bit every day. Um, you know, and I remember being, gosh, I don't know, I must have been around 10 years old and reading a passage from Psalms, it was probably like Psalm 90, about um, eternity, or as I interpret it, infinity. And, you know, I could imagine that something never ended, but I couldn't imagine something never beginning. And I must have sat there thinking about this for what probably felt like an eternity itself. And I didn't know it then, but I was I was philosophizing. And, um, you know, when I went to the University of Oregon as an undergrad, I was going to go into music business, and that wasn't a fit. I dabbled with sociology, English, um, gosh, even electronic music. I think the idea of being a DJ was a reality for just a hot minute. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is before Skrillex. This is before it was, you know, as popular. But... Um, I then took a philosophy course. It was on uh, human nature, and it was the most interesting class I'd ever taken. I couldn't stop thinking about the questions. I read more than I was assigned, and I quickly realized that philosophy allowed me to ask questions that bear upon not just my life, but life itself. Um, you know, questions like, what does it mean to live a good life? What's ethical? What's truth? And for me, the question that gripped me the most, um, and a question which my work still relates to today, was what is suffering? And what meaning is there or can there be in suffering? And, you know, philosophy allowed me to question experiences that honestly I, I didn't know and still today don't know how to handle. You know, I was, uh, I was hurt into philosophy, I think you could say. Now, it's interesting that you come from a religious background. David McLean, we had him on a couple of episodes ago. He's also a person of faith, but also a philosopher. Tell me, what was your what was your family's response? Uh, did they find <laughs> that the two clashed, that for, perhaps uh, philosophy was going to make you an atheist? What was their response to this? You know, I, I've never bought lines that there's some kind of antagonism between um, religious thought and philosophical thought. I just, um, I think that there are different ways to interpret experiences and that religion um, provides one vantage point onto asking, uh, honestly, philosophical questions, or we could flip that direction uh, if one prefers. Um, so yeah, my parents were a little worried, but <laughs> uh, it all worked out as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Thank you.
So, so let's start with the personal here. I don't know if you know, but my mother, she is no longer with us, but she was confined to a wheelchair all of her life. She was born with spina bifida, fine was not, spine was not fully developed. So she was in a wheelchair all of her life. And so I have my own experiences, my own history in regards to my mother's experience. So I want to ask you, tell me more about your mother and your brother and describe some of the stigmas and the oppressions of their disability. Yeah, so my... Um my brother was born with muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, and hydrocephalus, uh, among a couple of other things. <clears throat> and doctors said, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a, you know, like a 95% chance he wouldn't live to be one. And my mother was his primary caretaker uh, for the majority of his life. And through a combination of the physical labor that that required and other just random things, um, she is now disabled through chronic pain, fibromyalgia, severe TMJ, degenerative disc disease, um, et cetera. And, you know, I have, I, sp- I have spent so much time in hospitals or doctor's appointments over the course of my life. Um, you know, I knew more types of doctors by the age of probably six or seven than anyone around me. Um, and both inside the kind of medical establishment and outside, the older I got, the more I witnessed all the various levels of disability stigma. There were very obvious examples um, where, for example, as I, I mentioned in my TED Talk, where uh, we took Jason to my school for the very first time, and a number of the kids were kind of you know, sweet or indifferent. And one kid, who was my uh, arch nemesis at the time, said he drools just like his brother and was clearly trying to not only insult me but also was tying drooling to, you know, some kind of negative state, which didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, Jason, that was just part of what Jason did. I, it made no sense to me why that would be negative. Um, or in my mother's case, you know, she has had times where my dad has to show up in the appointment for what she is saying to be taken seriously. And the level of uh, disregard she gets as a female um, which was actually exacerbated by her being a female with a son with a disability. Um, it, it was just uh, heart-wrenching to watch these things. And then as I you know, kind of became more aware of disability rights activism and disability studies, I was like, okay, well, how can I be involved in changing these things? Um, and that's one of the things that led me into my, my work today. So I've had the opportunity to listen to your TED Talk. And I I loved it, by the way. You make a distinction between impairment and disability. Can you tell me what is that difference? And how is disability everywhere, as you you say? Yeah, so this distinction uh, between impairment and disability is at the heart of what is known as the social model of disability. And this model has provided the theoretical foundation for the disability rights movements of the last half of the 20th century, and also the institutional rise of, uh, of disability studies within multiple academic fields. And in a nutshell, impairment uh, names a person's embodied condition, whereas disability names the social problems and social stigmas that result from a given impairment. And, you know, the the social kind of political point here is very simple. Let's focus on altering conditions, not people. Or if, you know, put in the first person, I'm not the problem, the conditions under which I'm oppressed are. You know, and on the social model, I I think one of the clearest examples is, you know, one would say, for example, I'm not disabled if I use a wheelchair to get around. 
ambulation or non-ambulation is not what causes the problem. I'm only disabled when there aren't curb cuts or ramps or when people assume that by using a wheelchair, I can't speak or hear and then I'm, you know, socially ignored or mistreated. And these are facts about the built and social environment. Social environment is also built to a degree. And the, for the majority of history, the, the reality is that we just intentionally built with a standard able-bodied as the norm. Um, I mean, looking at architecture is the easiest uh, example there. And this is why ideas like uh, universal design in architecture and also um, digital design, it's so brilliant and simple. Why don't we design things for the widest range of use possible? And this, I think, is one of the connection points to that last question you asked me of the idea that disability is everywhere. This is another disability studies slogan, though the, the full version is disability is everywhere once you know how to look for it. You know, in the United States, Americans with disabilities constitute the largest and most inclusive minority. It's also the largest minority in the world. And so... I mean, even if we're thinking of it outside of uh, the terms of identity politics or a minority model, the deeper truth is that disability is constitutive of the course of any given human life. And when we understand disability in that widest sense as anything that falls outside uh, ableist norms, norms of that healthy, youngish, able body, in this sense, disability is also the only position everyone has already been in <laughs> through infancy and childhood, and the only identity position into which everyone will find themselves, you know, if they live uh, long enough. So this is why disability is everywhere, which, to be clear, is not the same as to say that everyone is disabled, Yeah. right? Each day we all face ability troubles of all sorts, and the trick is precisely that we don't all experience these in the same way. I guess the last thing I would add is that the reason the idea that disability is everywhere is so powerful is because I think it undermines and it problematizes any strong ontological distinction between disability and ability, right? No abilities exist without appropriate supports. I I can't do anything without, I mean, from oxygen to sustenance to sleep to forms of shared communication and interaction. You know, we don't have, I, I, I like to say, we don't have abilities. We enter into and we're claimed by relations of affordance. When we say I can do X, we're, you know, we're making a kind of philosophical error. So this is very connected to the term transability, is that correct? Yeah, so I, um, I mentioned that there's also another sense of transability. Um, and whereas my use of the term is, is ontological and, and describing kind of a way of being of the human, this other more narrow sense of the term uh, usually refers to people who are medically diagnosed as having some form of BIID, or body integrity identity disorder. And these are people who desire or need to move from their current state of able-bodiedness to a comparative state of impairment. So this might mean um, the amputation of a limb. It might mean the severing of a spinal column. And the history of this designation is itself revealing, right? So it began in, in psychological literature in the 70s as a type of fetish, all the way up to in the last decade or so. Now neuroscientists are saying it's a body mapping issue along the same lines of phantom limb pain. And, um, you know, for people who want to uh, learn about this, Chloe Jennings White is one of the more famous people who identifies as having BIID or identifies as transabled. And she went on Anderson Cooper's, um, his 360 show on CNN, I believe. And at one point, the audience actually applauded 
when Cooper said that her understanding of her body was, quote-unquote, completely inappropriate. And, you know, people with BID, not only do they experience disability stigma from able-bodied people, but even from within disability communities and also from trans communities for the use of that that prefix. Um, and so I, I guess part of what part of what makes transibility in the sense of BID so controversial is that it expresses the most transgressive thought from the vantage point of ableism, namely the desire for disability. One can today at least imagine a desire for many things, right? Being a different race, gender, etc. But a desire for disability is too transgressive. And there's uh, some disability studies scholars, um, Fiona Kumari Campbell, uh, Bethany Stevens, Alexander Burrell, they've done some fantastic work untangling all of the hostility um, that people who are transabled in the sense of BID uh, have to go through. But I hope that one can see that the issues raised by transibility as BID relate to transibility thought in a in an ontological register, as I as I've been using the term. One of the things that you mentioned was that disability makes up the largest largest minority, and philosophy has always existed <laughs> for for thousands of years. And uh, you're working within a field that some people would say is is not that popular. I mean, some people say, well, philosophy of disability, I never heard of that. Why do you think disability has not been given much attention in philosophy? You know, I guess if questions are understood as uh, responses to one's situation, then one answer might be that disability hasn't become a question for philosophy historically because too many philosophers in the Western canon, at least, have responded to the situation of being mortal through either an avoidance or denigration of the body. <laughs> so yeah. the, the body has like always been an issue in philosophy. It's the way in which it has been an issue that is the issue. And this is where work by disability historians, uh, I mean, they've been exposing so brilliantly that disability has always been at the center of Western intellectual history, just under other names. So for example, you know, what if we interpret Cartesian doubt as a form of intellectual disability relating to anxiety? Or what if we interpret Spinoza's theory of affects in uh, Book 4 of the Ethics as a form of psychological repression in his emphasis of overpowering negative affects by positive ones? You know, I think we've barely scratched the surface of reading the philosophical canon through a disability lens. And as more and more of that work comes out, I think we'll find that disability has actually been always <laughs> uh, a central question in the, the history of Western thought. You made me think about this notion of terror management, particularly not dealing with issues that relate to our own mortality. Mm. And it makes me think about some current technologies that, that are out now. So I recently saw a video of, it's kind of like a segue of sort of a person who's confined to a wheelchair, but on the segue, they're able to stand upright and to move about the office. I just recently saw a, this morning, I saw, I saw a CNN video of a, a deaf family. And one of the things that one of the children said that they were offered an implant and they said that they were just fine, fine without it. So think about all these technologies that seek to make those who are disabled less dis disabled. What do you think about these technologies? Yeah, so, you know, disability, again, meant in the broadest sense of, of anything that falls outside ableist norms, it's not going anywhere. Um, you know, contrary to the uh, misguided aspirations of uh, transhumanists and posthumanists, we're not going to be immortal. We're not going to stop aging. And honestly, I don't know why we would desire to. I mean, <laughs> so as I'm concerned, uh, part of the beauty of the human condition is its, uh, its finitude. Um, 
I think, you know, hell isn't other people that start thought. I think hell is actually eternity. Now, having said that, uh, using technology assistively is, is also part of the human condition, right? We're tool makers. And the unbelievable abilities, you know, just at our fingertips with smartphones, and I think of speech detect technology as one example, these increase access for all sorts of people in really positive ways. But there are certain forms of technology that are trying to make people, quote unquote, less disabled that I think are really, really misguided. You know, uh, why would we spend millions of dollars on exoskeletons when most of the United States just basic architecture is still inaccessible? Um, I think that there's a perverse misallocation of resources and goals in those types of um, technologies. Now, this is not, you know, an either or. So Project Ray Smartphone, right, the world's first uh, completely vision-free smartphone designed for the blind. This sounds great, but let's also make sure that crosswalks have signal sounds. <laughs> you know, like we need, we need both of these things going on here. So it makes me just go back to my, my experience with my mother. My mother didn't have an electric wheelchair, right? She had the old school one where she used her, used her arms. Right. And, and I always wondered why she never used an electric wheelchair. I mean, that just wasn't an option for her. And I remember her also telling me that there were opportunities in which they want to give her prosthetics, Mm. And she was just not for that. And and it was, you know, as I try to kind of remember all the conversations that we that we had, I think for my mother, she liked her normal. Right. And she did not want to become anything else but what she was. And so I just wonder in relationship to the, the terror to even go beyond that. Do you think that sometimes the technologies is a way to make those who are, quote unquote, disabled more like us? And what do you think about the response to a rejection of such technologies by the community? Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I, I think you hit on a very, very real issue there. I mean, we 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 and the largest we are uncomfortable with the variability of our bodies. You know, it's not just a fear of death, as Heidegger was convinced. You know, it's the pervasive inertia of our ability expectations. We expect and we want to expect that the conditions of our purposive uh, action are going to stay the same. Even though, again, aging, if nothing else, you know, proves that that's just not going to happen. But because I think we you know, we fear and we kind of act against change almost instinctually to a degree. When we are forced to undergo drastic ability transitions, uh, we deal with it really poorly initially. And this is where I, I think social scientific and psychological literature is very revealing. And they, there's this term called psychosocial adjustment, right? So let's say you get a life-altering diagnosis. It's going to be really bad for the first, like, six months to a year or two. But what will happen is, assuming there's a certain level of stability, one creates new normals. We adjust. And we will often live flourishing lives, even though relative to whatever we might have thought beforehand, they, they would have seemed restrictive. Um, and the way I think of this is that ability expectations, they overdetermine uh, our interpretation of ability transitions. Um, and this is where, you know, the phrase, I'd rather be dead than disabled, which is a phrase I've heard so many times, I, um, I heard in front of my family being said, like with Jason right next to us, you know, it's horrific and it's offensive on so many levels, but it's also just empirically misguided, <laughs> right? The, uh, the data says that no, actually most people would not rather be dead than have some relative state of impairment. On the contrary, 
they would abs- they would want to live and they would just roll with whatever that condition would uh, uh, brings about with it. You know, the question, would I choose X, is a completely different question from if I end up in situation X, what would I do? And again, this is where disability studies, I think, points this out so well by, by saying, look, disability is everywhere. Disability is constitutive of a human life. And yes, there are particular difficulties that may be concomitant with certain types of disabilities, but on the whole, those are because of the way we've set up the world. <laughs> and we got to change that. Now, going back to the CNN video that I watched, and I make sure I link it in the show notes on the website, the, the deaf family. So the mother and the father is deaf. She had two children who was also deaf and one child was able to hear. And I remember her saying that when she had the uh, her first child who was deaf and she recognized that that he was she said that she felt that she gave him the greatest gift what do you say in response to that yeah so the the distinction between lowercase d deafness so some form of audiological loss relative to um whatever species typical versus deafness with a capital d which refers to being culturally deaf so part of a community of uh signers uh, whether it's American Sign Language or some other form. I think this is a very powerful example to show the way in which what someone might assume is, oh, that's a disability in a negative sense. When you actually talk with people, they might say, no, this is actually just a difference. And it's a difference that I actually value. So, for example, you have some in the Deaf with a capital D community saying, deafness is no more a disability then if I, as an English speaker, go into a Spanish-speaking um, uh, place in the world, right? I, that's not a disability. That's just I don't speak the language. And I think that that captures something powerful about the way in which, in the kind of public imaginary, we, we assume that disabilities are negative. It's just a this – is, this is also goes back to the – forms of what's called inspiration porn. I don't know if you've run into this word, uh, <laughs> yeah. right? Where it's like, it shows there's an ad or whatever it might be. Look at this person with a disability. Oh, they overcame it. Now they're doing all these things. And that's so unbelievably offensive and stigmatizing, reducing a person with a disability, not just to their disability, but to their ability to overcome it. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a misunderstanding of, of human variability. It's a misunderstanding of human difference. And it also, you know, it requires, I think, some, uh, some integrity and some research on, on the side of people to not judge people in that way. You know, there needs to be more disability studies classes, let me put it that way, so that people start learning about these things. So let's talk a little bit more about that, because I, I've seen stuff in my newsfeed on Facebook, and uh, I think one popular, I mean, I've seen several of one person with a disability running a mud run, another one doing CrossFit. And usually the tag above these pictures or in the meme itself is the inspiration. If they can do it, you can do it too. And some right. people may say, you know, I can't help but be inspired by this. Right. Right. And, and maybe that may be um, speaking to their own, their limitations. I don't know. But what do you say about those people who feel, you know, hey, I'm just, I'm just naturally inspired 
by this? I mean, what do you think is going on there? You know, when I when I teach about inspiration porn, I show my students this satirical image. Uh, I think it was on the, it was going around on the internet a year or two ago, and it shows this middle aged woman, you know, laying in a field. It's there's flowers and it's a sunny day, and then there's a big title over the image that says, "This woman is strong, sexy, and brave, even if she does have both legs." And, you know, everyone immediately gets the punchline that we don't valorize the able body for doing anything normal. And it's only the disabled body that gets such praise. And even though someone might think, look, my feeling of inspiration is not meant to denigrate um, the person in question. It's a, it's a positive thought. Why can't I enjoy this? The reality is that the logic of that inspiration is assuming that the disability in question is a negative state. That's part of the logic. And so, you know, I would just ask people to critically reflect upon why they find it inspiring. And I think once they critically reflect upon it, they'll go, maybe I shouldn't find that inspiring. Maybe, maybe it's problematic and I should look for inspiration in, in uh, other forms of representation. <laughs> one, one thing I will add is, so Adorno has this amazing line, and it's quoted a lot for good reason. And he says, the need to let suffering speak is a condition of all truth. And I think he's right, but the problem is then how that suffering is heard. And if in the case of disability, all one hears is, look at my tragic life, or look at what I've uh, had to overcome, it's possible that one will just pity the other person, or just be inspired. But, you know, Aristotle, in the, in the Poetics, he says that a tragedy fails if you aren't shocked into identifying with the hero or heroine. Yeah. But to identify with another is not simply to imagine oneself in their shoes. It's also to like experience their situation as, as an aporia, as an impasse. In other words, I don't think one can simply ask the question, why do they suffer as they do? But you have to experience that question as one that demands an answer. So I would you know, amend Adorno to say something like, the condition of truth is to let suffering speak such that one seeks to alter the conditions of its emergence. And on that type of a logic, inspiration porn is unjust. It does not lead one to seek to alter the conditions of the actual societal ramifications of disability stigma. And that's where I think it's, it's quite problematic. Okay. So, so here's a challenge for you. Three myths concerning disability that you would like to debunk. What would they be? One is that disability is... Uh, negative. That is a myth that I think is still very much a part of kind of the, the, the cultural imaginary of the West. Another myth would be, and this is one where I, I have learned much about this from people like Bethany Stevens and, and other um, academics in the disability studies community, that people with disabilities, especially, especially intellectual disabilities, are not full, fully-fledged, sexual, loving, caring, emoting beings the infantilization of certain sets of people with disabilities still goes on today. Variation uh, entails degradation. If the conditions of my life change substantially, I will automatically be worse off. It is, for better or for worse, it's very intuitive, and I think it is just false in the vast majority of cases. Ex explain your, your third point a little bit more. So, um, Stephen Hawking... Any of these uh, uh, examples we can look to that are kind of obvious cultural ones where someone uh, is in a physical or psychological state that from the point of view of society is negative and yet 
they nevertheless live completely flourishing lives. Like no one is saying that Stephen Hawking isn't flourishing. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, no one no one makes that claim. And yet, if someone gets a diagnosis such as that, it is most likely the case that they will assume that that variation in their bodily state will lead to degradation, and that's just not necessarily true. So let's go back. Let's go back to number two. Okay. And it's 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 unique that you mentioned this. I was talking to a colleague of mine who is trying to put together a syllabus for next semester on her sex and gender roles class. And she she usually takes some time out to talk about disability. And she wanted to talk about sex and disability. And I was having a conversation with her. And it's, it's strange to even, you know, restate this again over the podcast. But I was re- telling her recently, I've been thinking about my mother's sex life. I know it sounds strange, but, <laughs> you know, thinking about the fact that even though she was disabled, I mean, she had two children. So right. you can imagine how that happened. I think my mother had a very healthy sex life, right? Yeah. And I think the thought that because someone is in whatever condition that they are, that they have no sexual desires, right. um, that they are children. I think my mother was a testament that that was not, that was not the case. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. There's an amazing documentary on Netflix called When I Walk by Jason De Silva. And uh, he was a, a filmmaker, and at 25, he got diagnosed with degenerative mus- uh, um, multiple sclerosis. And one of the things that he deals with, I think, very, very uh, well in the, in the film is conversations with his girlfriend about their sex life and having children and whatnot. And, of course, one of the things that you see is that, yes, uh, a unique set of concerns in that situation, but it's just like any other conversation in some respects between two loving partners. Um, you know, what do you like with this, that, the next, you know, what... I, to take a slightly more controversial topic, um, I'm, I don't know if you've heard about the trial of uh, Professor Anna Stubblefield. You know, I didn't want to go there, but you can bring it up. <laughs> so I'll go there, just, just, uh, but I will, I will go there trepidatiously to say that one of the factors, and I'm not remotely taking sides because, I, among other things, I don't have all the information, but one yeah. of the factors at play there is in almost every single news story, and in even in some of the court testimony, there was a, an, a conscious effort to show how the difference between DJ and Anna, Stubble, Anna Stubblefield was presumably so great, such that the rhetorical effect is for someone to think, how could A, DJ perform sexually, and then B, how could Anna Stubblefield have uh, sexual desire towards a person in that state? And of course, completely aside from the, the legal questions, one of the things that I find interesting, or interesting is the wrong word, troubling about that case, is the assumption of a certain level of asexuality on DJ's hmm. part, precisely yeah. because of the assumptions about his particular intellectual or physical state. And of course, all of these things are very life questions for me. I mean, my brother was not a, a sexual being in that way, but I do not therefore think that that means he did not have sexual desires. And honestly, if, if we had had more knowledge and, and uh, at our fingertips, we might have looked into ways to recognize that part of his being in an appropriate manner. But that wasn't anywhere, you know, we were just trying to <laughs> figure out how to <laughs> get care for him. That was not, that was sadly not at the forefront of our minds. But just the sheer fact that that wasn't even a concern. I mean, the fact that that wasn't something my parents and I really worried about, that right there 
already shows a certain level of judgment, uh, of assuming something about Jason that we had no right to assume. If anything, we should have assumed that we did not know without, (laughs) you know, trying to find out. So, and so on one end, there's this perception of those who are disabled as asexual beings in some way. But I also see kind of a judgment of sort of the person that would be attracted to someone who is disabled and how we kind of view them and look at them as if, why would you find them sexually attractive, right? Which goes to show kind of the things that we need to learn. Yes. The uh, stigmas that we need to get rid of and the prejudice that we have can concern our fellow citizens. Let me ask you this. How, how can we change the world so that we can create less disability? You know, I don't think we should change the world to create less disability. I think we should change the world so that it affords the, the full, always variable range of humans, supportive conditions for flourishing. One of the things that you, I, I, I remember you mentioning in the TED Talk was that those who were seated in their seats was able to get upstairs because there were stairs. Yeah. Right? And so, I mean, I, I took that as someone built stairs and that made us less disabled. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? We, like, and even not only building stairs, someone built a chair. <laughs> Right. So that we can sit down. We're not able to stand up for long periods of time. I know I'm not. I have a bad back. I have tendonitis in my knees. I'm an old woman, right? So I'm not able to stand for long periods of time. So I have a chair in which I can, that I can sit in. And, you know, I was just thinking about, I mean, you mentioned the curb that's on the street, kind of these social structures or things in place that make life livable, right? Yeah. And in some way, it makes, if disability is kind of a social kind of construction, that the things that are constructed is the thing that makes us or contributes to us not being as abled as we would, as we would like. For example, you know, I mentioned my, my, my mother, you know, years ago before buses were able to have kind of handicapped lifts, we used to just wait for the bus and wait and wait and wait. And maybe one would have a lift. Right. Right. That's how tough it was commuting. And sometimes my mother would just decide to get on the bus and she would have to crawl, get out of her wheelchair and crawl up and to get in. And in that way, I think that city made life difficult for my mother. I mean, everything was fine for her, but traveling was difficult because she could not get on the bus. So if they would have created a lift for every bus, then she would have been able to get about. Her wheelchair would not have been would not have been an issue. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, I, I think that that story is it happens all the time to people. I mean, trying to I mean, all the lawsuits against Uber now because they're not actually working to have uh, accessible cars. Uh, supposedly, in, in some cities, they are um, uh, now trying to address this. But, I mean, hailing a t- taxi in New York, if you're using a powered wheelchair, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're usually um, out of luck. But I, w- I will add one thing here. So there was uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, it was either American Airlines or United, I don't remember, but there was a headline because they had left a person who used a wheelchair on the tarmac and the person had to crawl, you know, all the way to the, to the terminal. And what I love is that, uh, uh, a disability studies scholar named Gregor Volbring, who, who himself uses a wheelchair, made a comment on Facebook and he's like, yeah, this is a problem, but I wish they would stop demonizing crawling. He's like, I crawl all over the place <laughs> because I like it. It's a great way to get around, you know, something like yeah. this. And so what I like is is both levels going on there. One, absolutely, we need to make uh, the physical environment more accessible. But at the exact same time, we need to work on the social and kind of psychological stigmas we have. Like, for example, thinking crawling is like bad. 
<laughs> and so I, I, I always think of his comment because I think it pushes the level of uh, internalized kind of disability stigmatization uh, another level. Can you remember one of your childhood hobbies? Probably your favorite childhood hobby. What would it be? Um, playing soccer. I love soccer. I was a midfielder. I wasn't quite fast enough to <laughs> be a be a forward, but I would go out and I could play soccer for hours. And then it hurt my knees, so I had to I had to stop eventually. <laughs> so you so you can't pick it back up again because your knees hurt. You know, I I couldn't for a number of years, and actually uh, through weight training, oddly enough, I've built back up uh, kind of my knee strength, and I probably could do it again. But now I'm not sure I have time. That whole grad student thing, kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. What was the What was the last movie you saw in a theater? Oh my. Uh, I knew you would have to think hard about this. Yep, it's been a while. <laughs> I'll tell you the last movie I saw that I really liked. Okay. Which was Interstellar. I talked to so many people who didn't like it because, you know, they just thought it was corny that love was the fifth dimension. <laughs> which, which, touche. But, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey did such an amazing job and that's the scenes where he is confronted with his, his own son who's now aged whatever it was, 20 years, and he's only experienced three months, and he, like, that, uh, the pull and play of temporality and the emotional kind of relations, that's what I love so much about it. It was a great film, I thought. It seems like you just answered this question, but Mm. give me something, something philosophical to take away from the movie. I think that the relations of care ended up, the point was, so let's just bracket the physics talks for a second. So we'll bracket whether or not (laughs) love is the fifth dimension, and let's just say that the way in which relations of care do transcend time and space. Even in in seemingly silly things where like you feel like something's wrong and you call up a friend on the other side of the world and lo and behold, something bad happened to them. Now, I'm not positing that there's a physical phenomenon behind that, but nonetheless, it is part of the human experience that care has this unbelievable power. You know, you can see an image from maybe 20 years before and just start sobbing because it, you know, brings up some type of experience. And that, that I think, is worth a lot of philosophical thought. I'm very fond of uh, care ethics, and I think that part of the power of that tradition and way of thinking about ethical relations is tapping into that. So you mentioned grad school as an excuse for why you don't have time to watch a movie. <laughs> so let me get your advice here for a lot of graduate students, people who've gone back to school who's probably listened to the podcast. I'm putting pressure on you. Yeah. What is one key to surviving graduate school? The key is actually not working as much as you think you have to because your mental health <laughs> is more important than anything else. And you're never done, right? You're never done. You've never read enough. You've never written enough. You can always do better. And so cutting out blocks of time to make sure you have fun, you spend time with family and friends, you let off steam, I think is actually crucial to to getting through the process, but also to making sure that your creative juices keep flowing. Being a workaholic, I was a workaholic, I'm a recovering workaholic, (laughs) and um, life is better now that I, I actively try to mitigate that desire. And final question, what would you tell a family who just found out that their newborn is disabled 
or that their family member has become disabled, what would you tell them? When it comes to the newborn, I would say whatever the disability in question is, talk to people from multiple arenas. Talk to people who have experiences with whatever that is and do research. You know, my parents, when when they found out about Jason, although they understood that he would be different and there would be certain difficulties that came along with it, they did not automatically assume that his life would be any less worth living than mine was, right? I was two years old at the time he was born. And that required a reflective, inquisitive kind of response to the situation and one where they did not make snap judgments about what his life would mean just because he was quote-unquote disabled. And I think that that's the most important thing for people to do is don't make snap judgments. <laughs> um, and it's very hard, but being ethical is hard. And to the family whose family member has just become disabled? Yeah, I would say that, as I mentioned before, psychosocial adjustment and absolutely when one finds out that one is going to go through a severe ability transition, it's going to be hard at the beginning. And so being supportive and caring is, is very important, but also understanding that that transition doesn't necessarily mean they won't live a life worth living or won't be able to flourish. It doesn't automatically mean any of those things. And so support should always be balanced with that understanding of we are very variable beings. We come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, all sorts of abilities, and we experience that variability across the course of a life. And our job, I think, as humans who presumably care about ethics and justice and whatnot, is to help take care of people wherever their level of variability is at. Joel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.